All right. Thank you, worship team. Loved having you lead us uh, this morning. Loved worshiping alongside the congregation today as well. Pray for Mark this morning. Mark is in Anaheim Hills preaching at Kindred Community Church, which is Philip DeCourcy's uh, church in California, in Orange County. So uh, Philip will return the favor and come and preach here in the first part of December, but Mark is, uh, is preaching there. So, so pray for him as he uh, labors on behalf of, of that congregation. And because he's there, I am here. So go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you have, have that hanging somewhere in your home or office somewhere? Any of you? Maybe you've posted it on social media, it's sort of an Instagram-ready verse, right? Or maybe someone, somewhere in this room, maybe you have it tattooed somewhere. Does anybody have it tattooed anywhere? You don't have to show us, we're just wondering if you have it tattooed. It's a great verse. We love this verse, and we should love this verse because it is a wonderful, beautiful, encouraging promise in Scripture. But if we make the mistake of, of reading the Bible as a book about us, and not a book written for us, we run the obvious risk of misinterpreting and misapplying this beautiful, promising word from God to his people. So this morning, as we take a one-week break from our study of the book of Daniel, I want us to stay in the Old Testament, even stay in the same time frame as the book of Daniel, which means I want you to be in the book of Jeremiah. Make your way to chapter 29 if you haven't already. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 14 here in just a moment. If you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, you probably know that his nickname is the Weeping Prophet. The Weeping Prophet. Two Old Testament books are attributed to the prophet Jeremiah, the book that bears his name, and also the book of Lamentations. So we have the Weeping Prophet who wrote the book of Lamentations. Uh, everything we know about this guy doesn't exactly make us happy. He was called to be a prophet at a fairly young age. When the Lord came to Jeremiah, uh, he thought himself too young for the task. He thought himself not eloquent enough to speak for God. But of course, as God always does, God called him anyway. And his job as a prophet was to proclaim judgment and doom for the southern kingdom to the group that we call Judah. And, and in his ministry, which lasted about 40 years, virtually no one listened to him and the kingdom of Judah did not repent. Thus his name, the weeping, lamenting prophet Jeremiah. And because of this calling, the first 28 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, they are all gloom and doom. They're gloom and doom. It's Jeremiah calling out Judah's specific sins against God and outlining how God is going to judge and bring his wrath against them. But then, when you get to chapter 29, beginning in chapter 29, you go from the gloom and doom of the first 28 chapters to grace and to glory. Chapters 29 through 31 specifically are about God's promises to his people. His promises that he will bring them back from captivity in Babylon. That he will love them with an everlasting love. That he will establish a new and lasting covenant with them. So what we're about to read is the beginning of that change in tone. And the 11 verses we're going to study this morning, they almost read like a Pauline epistle. 
And as you know, the Apostle Paul wrote letters to the churches that he had been with and the, let, and, and the churches that he helped start. These were instructional letters to help them stay faithful and doctrinally sound. And similarly, these words from Jeremiah are the Lord's instructions to the exiles who were in Babylon. Jeremiah, he remains in Jerusalem, he, he, and he's writing these words just after the second deportation that took place in 597 B.C. You remember Mark's outline of the deportations and then ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem. There was a major dis, uh, deportation in, in 597, and he would have written, Jeremiah would have written just after that event. And so he sends this letter with a guy named Elash, and Elash was a courier of King Zedekiah. And so it then lands into the leadership there in Babylon. So let's read Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they might bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. All right, well, I'm going to talk about this passage in two primary ways this morning. I'm going to walk through what I identify as seven principles that God wants the Jewish exiles in Babylon to obey or remember. That's the first way I'm going to talk about it. The second way I'm going to talk about this passage is by way of application. I want us to determine if there's anything for us in these commands and in these reminders. So what the Lord has to say to the Jewish exiles and then what might be there for us as well. So, to God's people exiled in Babylon, first, acknowledge God's providence. That's verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So, in not-so-subtle fashion, God has made it clear that he has sent them to Babylon. Sure, it was Nebuchadnezzar that had them carted off. Sure, they had functionally turned their back on the Lord and they had worshipped other gods, but they are his people and God is still involved in their day-to-day existence as his people. The Lord tells them twice in this short letter. In verse 7, he reiterates again, this is the city where I have sent you. They didn't just end up in Babylon. 
This is no accident. This reminds me a bit of the book of Philippians. Of all the encouragement that we read in the book of Philippians, there is a little phrase in chapter 1, verse 16, that means the most to me. And it's where Paul says, of his imprisonment, he says, I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. I've been put here. Not, I wound up here. Not, I'm not sure how I got here. But I have been put here. And, and he's, he's acknowledging God's sovereign plan. It was that kind of spiritual insight that allowed Paul, even while he was in prison, to have a massive gospel impact. So even though it seems like all has been lost for Judah, this, this, this deportation has occurred because God has brought it to pass. He has put them in Babylon. The Lord providentially raised up a nation, he put a king in power, and he moved him to bring judgment upon God's own people. And if they believe this to be true, if they acknowledge God's good providence in their circumstances, it's going to shape their entire outlook about life in Babylon. So this is God's plan for his people. It is, in fact, we can't overlook this, it is, in fact, discipline for their sins, but, the, but, but God disciplines those he loves. Therefore, they're not despised by God, they're not abandoned by God, rather, they're being loved by God. Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way, it's talking about God's discipline. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It goes on, it says in verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, the opposite of fatherly discipline is not fatherly affection. The opposite of fatherly discipline is not fatherly affection. The opposite of discipline is neglect. It's neglect. The, the opposite of discipline is being forgotten. It's being written off. And God does not do that with his children. He does not neglect or forget his people, but he does, he does discipline them. And he does this because he wants them to be righteous and he wants them to be wise. Jeremiah, again, in the first uh, two-thirds of this book, bearing his name, is getting a word from the Lord serving as condemnation for Judah. And in chapter 4, he says something uh, about them, about them being wise, uses actual air quotes, or quotation marks, use, about being wise in the ways of evil. Listen to verses 21 and 22 of chapter 4. He, this is the Lord speaking of his people. He says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. Now, at my house, for you know, the first years of my kid's life, you weren't allowed to use that word. <laughs> you, you couldn't say stupid. You couldn't call each other stupid. You couldn't say something was stupid. But, you know, here we have the Lord calling his own children, calling his kids stupid. That doesn't give kids a pass to start using that word, by the way. Uh, but God characterizes them accordingly. They're stupid. 
They're wise in doing evil. They're crafty and cunning in the way that they practice unrighteousness. And because God is a good God, because he's a good father, he's not going to leave his kids in that condition. He's going to train them in wisdom and righteousness. And what that involves is discipline. What that involves is a trip to Babylon. Which brings us to the first explicit directive that the Lord gives them, which is establish a presence. Look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So the people of Judah who've been hauled off to Babylon, approximately 10,000 of them or so, they're encamped outside of town near the Kabar River. And they're very content to stay there and content not to go into wicked Babylon. They just want to wait it out in their refugee camp outside of the city. But God says, no. You guys are going to be here a long time. Go establish yourselves in the city where I have sent you. You see, God's people are to be resident aliens. Aliens because they're not living in their home country anymore. Residents because they're living where God wants them to live. So settle here, God says. This is your new home. Don't rent, buy. Get involved in agriculture. Plant gardens, reap and sow, eat your produce. Then look at verse 6. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they might bear sons and daughters. So the command is, hey, multiply in Babylon. Don't, don't fear the, we- the wickedness in Babylon for the next generation. D- don't complain about the schools for your kids. I've sent you here. Start having families. Grow in number. Because you know what? You adults that are hearing this, you adults, you're not going to make it back to Israel. You're not coming back to Jerusalem. You will die in this foreign land. But the next generation and the generation after that, they're going to make it back. They're going to be back in the land. So demonstrate a renewed faith in me by increasing in number while in exile. Increase in number so there will be a people who can come back, is what God is saying. The next directive is a little more general, but ever so important. He says to them, seek the peace of Babylon. Look at the first part of verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. In the Old Testament, the recurrent word for welfare is a word that you've probably heard before. It's the word shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew term with a very broad lexical range. Now, it does mean peace, as you probably know, but it's a comprehensive kind of peace. It means order. It means health. It means safety and harmony and well-being and happiness and wholeness and completeness. Shalom in Babylon would mean that all is right in the city of Babylon. Seek holistic prosperity and peace for the city. Don't just seek it for your fellow Jewish people with whom you're exiled. I mean, that's obvious. That's a default setting for them, right? Don't just seek it for them. Seek shalom for the place I have sent you. Seek shalom for Babylon itself. You know, one way they could do that, if you think about the previous directive is just be faithful in obeying that previous command. Build homes, plant gardens, have families. You know, stable families are one of the basic building blocks of any flourishing society. 
to, to multiply in Babylon with, with faithful mothers and strong fathers raising up God-fearing children, that is going to make an impact on this city. It just is. And you know, it's really interesting to me. This weekend, a woman was nominated for the open seat on the Supreme Court of the United States. You guys have probably all seen this. And by all accounts, her judicial record is sterling, but it seems, it seems that all the press can talk about is the size of her family. And the family that the Barretts have, that they've been blessed with, you know what? It's an offense to a society that doesn't value the family and even tries to tear the family down. It's an offense. But when you think about it, how many of our societal problems can be traced back to the breakdown of the family? Short answer, a lot of them. You know, a recent study by the Institute for Family Studies, it revealed that on average, even high school dropouts, even high school dropouts who are married with kids have a far lower poverty rate than do single parents who have gone to college. And I'm not bashing single-parent families, not at all. I'm just saying that many think that education is the answer to pulling people out of the cycle of poverty, but the impact of traditional, intact families really can't be overstated. The family has a unique way of stabilizing and bringing prosperity to a society, and that's what they're being called to do in Babylon, to seek the shalom, to seek the prosperity, to seek the peace of the city. But also, pray for its prosperity. Look at the second half of verse 7. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. In its shalom, you will have shalom. And it's interesting, this is the only verse in the Old Testament that instructs the Jews, instructs Israel to pray for its enemies. Isn't that interesting? And this is quite a command because their impulse, the impulse of these people would have been to pray Psalm 137. And Psalm 137 is a very severe psalm. You might be familiar with it. It cries out these words. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That would have been their go-to prayer in this situation. That would have been the language they prayed for Babylon, but the Lord commands them and says, no, pray, the, pray for the prosperity of this place. And to do that, to pray for the city's prosperity, the psalm that would have come to their mind to the, to the mind of the exile, would have been Psalm 122. Listen to Psalm 122. Actually, turn to Psalm 122. It's going to help you. I'm going to talk about this just for a moment. This was the prayer that a Jew would pray for the prosperity of the city of Jerusalem. And it says, pray for peace in Jerusalem. In this case, pray for peace in Babylon. Prosperity to your houses, peace inside your city walls, prosperity to your palaces. Since all are my brothers and friends, I say peace be with you. Since the Lord our God lives here, I pray for your happiness. The language of Jeremiah 29.7 echoes the vocabulary of Psalm 122. The people of God had long 
prayed for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, now God commands them to use that same language for Babylon. Four things that come out of this prayer for peace and prosperity. You can probably see them. They're easy to identify. Pray for the economy of the city first. It says, prosperity to your houses. So ask God to bring justice to the poor and to bring prosperity for everyone within the economic systems of the city. Pray for that. Pray for the economy of the city. That's what he's telling them. Pray for the safety of the city. So, so pray for peace inside the city walls. Pray that citizens will be kept safe from harm and, 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 the, and the city streets will be free from violence. Third, pray for the politics of the city. Look, it says, prosperity to your palaces. So, so ask God to grant wisdom and integrity to, to the authorities who govern the city there. And then fourth, pray for the people of the city. Peace be with you, that prayer says. Pray for the Lord's blessing on, on all people and on all groups in the city. Go, go neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block. Go, go house by house praying for the shalom and the prosperity of Babylon. Pray for the nation. Pray for its holistic safety and economy. Pray for its politics and its people. That's what God is leading them to do. Next one. And I have to eventually apply all of these, so I'm going to keep moving kind of fast. Next one, beware false prophets. This is verses 8 and 9. Don't let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, the Lord says. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. Notice he calls them your prophets, your diviners. They're not God's prophets. God doesn't claim these characters. These are, these are Judah's prophets. And the big problem they're causing is they are telling the people that this exile is only going to be very short. And so those who listen to these false prophets, they are the ones that still have their bags packed because they're gonna, they, they, want, they want to be ready to head back to Jerusalem. They haven't unpacked. They haven't settled down. They're only working part-time jobs. They're, they're, not, they're not buying. They're renting. They're not planting gardens. But God's making it clear, that's not my plan. And isn't it interesting, when, when we don't like the way God's plan is unfolding, we'll very often seek the words of those who tell us what we want to hear. Isn't that interesting? There's a cartoon, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that came to mind as I was thinking about this where Calvin says to his buddy Hobbes, isn't it sad how some people's grip on their lives is so precarious that they'll embrace any preposterous delusion rather than face an occasional bleak truth? Profound words from seven-year-old Calvin, I'd say, right? You know, Mark shows you these sophisticated you know, maps and outlines, and, and I show you single cartoon panels, and that pretty much says it all, doesn't it? But it is true. We will seek those who confirm our biases and soften the reality of our situations rather than trust the plan of God. We'll seek those who tell us what we want to hear rather than seek the Lord and trust his goodness. Which brings us to what God wants to tell them next, which is trust his plan. Trust his plan. Verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. My good word is to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. You don't have to turn there, but 
If you go back to chapter 25, you can read the moment the Lord told Judah that this 70-year exile was going to take place. He tells them the terms and the times. God laid the plan out for them. And so now it's come to pass, and now what he needs is for them to trust him. And no doubt, no doubt, they think all is lost. No doubt they are languishing in grief and despair. They don't want to be in Babylon. Who would want to be in Babylon? But God says, I have a plan. I know the plans I have for you. The statement is emphatic, which is to say it's sure and it's true. This week I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are in, God would have put you there. Let me read that again. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are in, God would have put you there. The people of Judah need to believe the words of a 19th century English Baptist, and so do I, and so do you. God knows what he's doing. His plan cannot be thwarted. Last director from the Lord to his people in exile, receive God's promise. Verses 12 through 14, he says to them, seek me, search for me. Do this and, and, and I will be found by you. God's not hiding. He says, I will restore your, for your fortunes. I will bring, ultimately, I will bring you back. When you read through these last three verses of the correspondence, I think 10 or 11 times the Lord says, I or me. So the close of this letter is all about what God is going to do for his people. God's saying, I'm not going to leave this up to you. I'm going to get this done for you. I'm true to my word. I'm honest with my plans. And it's interesting, the same word for seek the Lord in verse 13 is used also in verse 7 when it says that they're to seek the welfare of Babylon. So the Lord wants these people to be wholehearted in what they seek. Seek the peace of the city, seek and find me. Again, it's Daniel who embodies obedience to these words. In Daniel 9, which is a chapter that I know Mark cannot wait to teach you, in Daniel 9, it says, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So in Daniel, as, as Daniel chapter 9 opens, what you have is Daniel consulting and reading the prophet Jeremiah. And no doubt, he's reading chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, because listen to what he says next in Daniel 9, 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication. Here we have Daniel obeying what Jeremiah laid down, or what the Lord laid down through Jeremiah in these, in these words decades earlier. So Daniel claims the promise of God regarding the restoration of Israel after 70 years of exile. He's laying hold of it, and he's seeking the Lord in it, praying earnestly for its fulfillment. And what's interesting is what follows in the subsequent verses of Daniel chapter 9, after you get through verse 3, what follows before you get to the prophecies at the end of the chapter, what follows is a thorough repentance 
by Daniel. He's repenting for his own sins. He repents for the sins of the generations that came before him. He repents of the sins of all of Israel. And my point is, seeking the Lord is a humble and humbling activity. You don't seek the Lord in pride. It's impossible. You don't sincerely search for God and find him because you're really, really good at it. Seeking the Lord is a humble posture of life. It's a life of repentance and faith, and that's what we see in Daniel. Okay, now I've been very careful to not take this word from God, this word to his exiled people in Babylon, and treat it like it's a letter to you, 21st century Christian people in Edmond, Oklahoma. I've been careful not to do that. I've been careful not to treat it like a letter to the people of the United States of America. I would be in error if I did that. This is a letter to Jewish people in 6th century BC who have just been hauled out of their native country by a pagan king. None of us can really relate to that context, at least not yet, right? However, the character of God always applies to his people. The character of God always applies to his people, and we see much about the character of God here. There are aspects of God's character that we see here that we can carry over and make application to our lives today. Furthermore, we may not be Jewish exiles in Babylon, but at, at, at least a couple of places in the, in, the, in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as exiles. Now think of 1 Peter chapter 1. That's the most obvious reference to this idea. We studied that book of the Bible last year, and in it, it we are called elect exiles, people living on earth but citizens of heaven. And it's sort of modern-day urban church planters who have helped Christians think about our exiled status in recent years. They've said, as Christians in exile, you have to choose your posture to where God has placed you. You have to choose your posture to where God has placed you. You can either, you can either be in the community where God has placed you, which means you're present there, but you're sort of insulated and isolated from the community. You're almost afraid of it not really involved in its welfare or its peace. You can either be in it, or you can be against the community where God has placed you, which means you have a, a hostile approach to the world around you. You're at war with it. You can be of the community where God has placed you, which means you take on its worldview and its values, even if those values are unbiblical. We don't want to be that kind of Christian or that kind of church. Or, and this is the most biblical bit of advice for Christians today, you can be for the community where God has placed you, which that's the spirit of Jeremiah 29, is it not? To be for the community is not just to leech off the community's benefits from a distance, but to invest in the flourishing of the place where God has put you. So let's quickly go back through these directives and make quick application to our own lives as we seek to be faithful Christians living for God and for the place that God has exiled us. So to us today, acknowledge God's providence. There's a guy named Ed Stetzer who runs the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. And I heard him say a few years ago that Christians in America have lost their home field advantage. We've lost our home field advantage, and he's exactly right. Because people older than me, I'm 45, People older than me, they remember when everything the church did was applauded by the culture. 
The church had favored status. Businesses were mostly closed on Sunday. Theaters weren't open. Christians had home field advantage. And somewhere along the way, 35, 40 years ago, the game got changed. The game got changed, and that change has disoriented older people, and many of them, all they know to do is be angry about it. And in their anger, they throw rocks at what they perceive to be wrong with the culture, and sort of sentimentally, they think about the good old days when Christians were in charge. But people younger than me, they don't have any of those kinds of memories. They're not looking for favors from the culture. It's been clear to younger people for as long as they've been alive that society is somewhat hostile to Christian truth and hostile to Christian morality. And we can bemoan that and be discouraged by that, and we should sort of grate against that, but we also need to acknowledge God's providence in that. We need to use the mindset of the Apostle Paul and say that we've been put here in this current place for the advancement of the gospel. The exiles in Babylon certainly had no home field advantage, but the Lord reminded them that they'd been sent there by him and were to live for him amidst a hostile pagan culture. So how do we do that? Again, we establish a presence. Jim Elliott famously said, wherever you are, be all there. That's my favorite of all his quotes. Wherever you are, be all there. And right now, you may not be where you want to be, and you know what? You may never be where you want to be, at least in this life. But make the most of where you are. Be all there. Bloom where you're planted. Make the best of a bad situation, and you may find that it's not such a bad situation after all, because it's where God has you. The other day, I read a quotation from Martha Washington, our nation's first first lady. And she said, I'm still determined to be cheerful and happy in whatever situation I may be. For I have learned from experience that the greater part of our happiness or misery depends upon our dispositions and not upon our circumstances. Wherever you are, be all there. Don't, don't live halfway. Don't live half-hearted. Don't fear. Trust in God's goodness. His presence is with you. And then next, seek the peace. What, what does that mean for us? How do we apply that? Seeking the peace means being a good neighbor. It, it means serving those around you. It means sacrificing for the good of others and not always looking out for your own interests. It means practically loving and helping the, the, the poor. It means being a good customer to the places that you patronize. It means holding doors open. It means driving your car safely. It means embracing people who are different from you, either ethnically different or socioeconomically different. Still, though, individual Christians, we can do all those things, and you know what we can fail at? We can fail to bring peace to the city, even in doing those things. Because by themselves, being nice and performing random acts of kindness, that doesn't actually bring enduring peace to a city or a community. And that's because only the work of Christ on the cross can bring peace. A community cannot be at peace until its people know Jesus Christ. And I say this because sinners are not at peace with God. Sinners are not at peace with God. They're at war with God. They deserve wrath and judgment and hell. But we know that Jesus Christ came to make peace with God and man. So the words of Romans 5.1 need to be on our lips. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Are we bearers of that peace? Not just practical, functional, random acts of kindness kind of peace, but true peace. Peace that comes through the gospel. Are we ready to share that? Because here's the message. Jesus Christ... He moved in. 
He came to us. He, he established a presence among us. He condemned the false teachers around him, and he sought and bought peace and freedom for those when he died on the cross for our sins. He embodied the, the obedience to what Jeremiah, to what the Lord is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. Pray for prosperity. How do we apply that, that fourth directive? I think we, we purpose to not keep prayer inside the walls of the church or inside the four walls of our homes. We, we take prayer into the public square. We pray for everything. And I don't agree with, with Franklin Graham on everything, but I respect the man. And I respect that he gathered yesterday throngs of Christians in Washington, D.C. to do one thing, not protest, but to pray. To pray for the nation, to pray for the safety and the economy of our country, to pray for its politics and people. Is that ever more needed than today? I don't think so. One way that I've always characterized prayer, you pray about what you care about. If you don't pray for your neighbors or for your community or for your country, it's probably not that you forgot it's probably that you just don't care about them that much. You pray about what you care about. Pray for prosperity. Then beware false prophets. Today, this takes a lot of different shapes, but we have modern false prophets, as you know. And the prosperity preachers that are among us, their, their message is a little different from Jeremiah's day, but the approach is basically the same. Their ministry consists of telling people what they want to hear. Their ministry consists of saying prosperity equals God wants you to be wealthy. But here's the reality. Biblical prosperity does not resemble health and wealth. If it did, explain Paul. If it did, explain Jesus. Biblical prosperity does not resemble health and wealth. Biblical prosperity is not even the absence of suffering. Biblical prosperity is being brought near to God. And, and what so often do we know brings us near to God? Suffering does, right? I'll quote Spurgeon again. He said, Trials bring us to God, and we are happier. For nearness to God is happiness. Nearness to God is happiness. That's prosperity. And then we'll lump our application of the last five verses together. How do we trust God's plan and receive God's promise as Christians? Well, the major point of God's letter to these exiles and the enduring point for us today is that our long-term prospects are always better than our immediate conditions. Our long-term prospects are better than our immediate conditions. We live in a day in which everyone wants immediate gratification. Give it to me now. But we're Christians, and we're looking forward to God's ultimate promise. We're looking forward to a future kingdom, a heavenly home, Paul says this profoundly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says to the Christians there, Don't lose heart, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So his version of seek the Lord, right? For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And what Paul is reminding us of is if you're, if you're overwhelmed by the struggles of life right now, which many people are, if you're weary of the condition of our community and our culture and our nation, know this. Know that 100 years from now, there will be no trouble in your life. None. 
And a thousand years from now, there will be no trouble in your life. And a million years from now, no trouble in your life. That's God's promise, to wipe away every tear from our eye and give us an eternity with him. There once lived a woman named Adelaide Pollard. I'm close with this. She dearly wanted to travel to Africa. That was her plan. She wanted to be a missionary there. But she was unable to raise the necessary funds. She had to cancel her plans, and she sank into a kind of disappointment and depression. But she tells the story of attending a prayer meeting, and and she heard there an elderly woman praying. And the older woman said in her prayer, It's all right, Lord. It doesn't matter what you bring into our lives, just that you have your own way with us. And so that very night, while reading actually through the book of Jeremiah, Pollard wrote out her own prayer, just along those lines of the prayer she heard. And that prayer became a great song of invitation, and you've probably heard it before. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Some of you need to maybe pray that prayer for the first time. To say to God, have your own way with my life. You're the potter, I'm the clay. I don't want what I want, I want what you want. And what you want for me is Jesus Christ. And I've never looked to him in saving faith. So if that's you this morning, look to Christ in faith. Look to the potter who can do more with you and prosper you and guide you and lead you in ways that you could never guide yourself. God's plans are not always easy plans. They're not always our preferred plans. But I would rather read Jeremiah 29, 11 in a way that centers around God and not me. I'd rather read Jeremiah 29, 11 in a way that rejoices in God's fatherly love and in his faithfulness because that is so much better than demanding God for what I see as good. I know the plans I have for you, he says plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you each day in, in faith. And we do that because you're a good God. And not only are you good and kind and merciful to us, but you're sovereign. You have our lives in your hands. You're not going to let us go. We are your children. And though we deserve your discipline, that is your good hand of love upon us to give us more of yourself, to give us true blessing and true prosperity. Lord, I thank you for this time and place and people, this, this opportunity to gather together, to sing your word, to, to look at your word, and to be encouraged by one another. I pray that that's taken place in every human heart today that's here. Lord, we seek to give you glory for all these things, these things that you've shown us in your word and these things that you've given us to share with the world around us. Send us out from here on mission for you. It's in Christ's name we pray.